0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the podcast, The Patient from Hell. I'm your host, Samira Daswani. This episode has been sponsored by an organization that has funded our podcast called the patient Center Outcomes Research Institute. Dr. Karen Wernley is a principal investigator that has also been funded by PCORI and is a guest on our podcast today. Dr. Karen Wernley and I have had the opportunity to speak a number of times now, and I cannot tell you how excited I am to have her on this podcast. Dr. Wernley, thank you so much for joining us today. Samira, thanks for having me. It's really an honor. Oh, it's our honor. I, I know this from having spoken to you many, many times now. Um, I would love to have you start with where you are right now. Just tell us geographically where you're located.
1: Uh I live in Seattle, Washington. I live in a neighborhood in Seattle, Washington. My organization, still a lot of us are working from home. So I'm in my house. Um, and because other people in my family also working from home, I'm in a new location in my house, in my bedroom. Um,
0: so that's where I'm at. That's amazing. I'm in my house too. I'm out of San Francisco working out of my uh, office slash guest room slash multi-purpose gym just a uh, slash podcast studio you know all, all rolled into one it's the remote I, life we live.
1: The funny thing is that this desk I'm sitting at I recently bought because I've been taking art classes and I wanted an art table <gasps> so that I had a place to store my things but because I bought uh-huh. it in the summer it's I, I haven't sat here because I've been painting outside instead of inside when it rains so it's like the first real use of the art desk
0: oh my god okay i have a lot of questions for you let's start there uh what kind of art are you doing
1: Ha. um i started this art class at the beginning of january because i have teenagers and they're moving forward in life so i have more free time and we did um acrylic oil Mm -hmm. Gouch and a caustic oh, wow. but at, at home i mostly just do watercolor and my oh. class has shifted so now we're mostly just doing oil painting oh. which is kind of phenomenal
0: oh that sounds incredible the only amount of art i can claim to is some watercolor i have a whole acrylic set but i've never actually opened it so it's uh you may be oh, sometime without sometime we should just do art together done deal okay deal okay that's a deal um what got you have you always been painting or is this a new thing no 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 (laughs) no
1: I took this intensive watercolor class at an art school close by Mm -hmm. uh like a few weeks after my class my weekly class started Um, there are a lot of people who are like in the pandemic, I did a YouTube class on watercolor, but I haven't even done that. And I admitted I probably hadn't had class art class since I was like 10. And the the teacher scolded me because in um, testing out my colors and my paints, I painted my mountains brown. And she said, why are you painting them brown? Is that how you see them? And I was like, No, this whole thing is just like so new for me and I'm so excited about the color I was just like testing it right just like testing it um so I think it's kind of funny like the journey like the journey you have to go through when you're learning new skills so it's really like learning just learning new skills
0: that's incredible it's such a such a good story uh I think I have a similar story, but not so much with watercolors, but more with poetry. Mm-hmm. So during the pandemic, my my treatment happened to coincide with the pandemic. And for some reason, my brain just started writing in poetry. I don't think my brain could process full sentences anymore. So I just started writing poetry, never written poetry in my life. And then stumbled across um, Mary Oliver, who is a poet mm-hmm. laureate, I see you nodding your head. Uh-huh. So she's written this book on how to write poetry. So I found it and then, of course, was like learning how to write poetry. And that was my like pandemic creative journey. And now it doesn't come to me as easily, but uh, it's. But don't you think it's like a skill you come back and forth to? Yes, it like ebbs and flows, right? It's one of those things where it comes to me in spurts. At least Mm -hmm. the poetry does. I go through like intense periods of writing and then nothing. I think the same thing with watercolors for me as well. Um, It it goes to like periodic creation. And then it's like my brain dries up and it requires it to refill. So I don't know. You know, Suleika
1: Jowad, she wrote for the New York Times. And she talks about the 100-day... don't remember how she calls it the 100 day creativity like do something artistic Mm -hmm. every day
0: yeah uh did you ever read um oh man what's her name artist's way i didn't oh highly recommend artist's way is uh, that book got me through survivorship i I shouldn't say that i'm I'm in survivorship but it it got me through the transition into survivorship Mm -hmm. and very similar philosophy where she has a 12-week course a self-guided self-based it's a workbook old school paper and it is just spectacular it's one of those things that at least enable me to I think process cancer life and cancer trauma and cancer everything but without actually talking about the cancer mm-hmm. and using the kind of creative energy that was coming to me in writing and art and but channeling that, but actually processing drama. it was, it was just absolutely spectacular. It was one of my favorite things that I did, um, and I recommend it to pretty much anyone. <laughs> I did not get paid for endorsing this product, guys. <laughs> But it's, it's just it's one of those, um, one of those self-guided creative endeavors that has served me really well. Um, so on that, completely. Arbitrary note, uh, I'd love to learn about how you got into cancer epidemiology.
1: It's kind of a funny story, actually. Um, I did my master's degree at the University of Texas in Houston. And before I started in that program, I'd been working in reproductive epi, um, working on other studies like maternal and child health. And so I thought that that's what I was going to do. And I, my mentor was actually at MD Unison Cancer Center. And so she and some other people that I met there encouraged me to apply for a training grant, um, like a three month summer internship.
0: Yeah. And I did, and it, uh,
1: stock, um, I just found really great mentors. I thought that the research was really interesting. At the time, I didn't have a familial connection. Um, it was just that there, were, there was a lot of opportunity for research development, hmm. growth, um, and collaboration. So we started at MD Anderson. Um, and then when we moved to Seattle, I worked at Fred Hutch as a project coordinator on a I think it's really interesting. Um, A cohort of textile workers in Shanghai, China. Wow. Um, In the late 80s, early 1990s, the lead scientist collaborated with a physician who was responsible for that general health of women in the Shanghai, well, everyone, I guess, in the Shanghai Textile Industry Bureau. And so they started a randomized trial to teach women how to do breast self exam to see if they can find their breast cancers earlier in, in an area or in a setting where mammography wasn't widespread. Yeah. So that continues to be the case in many countries. And in the absence of population-based mammography screening, what are the other tools that are available? And the results from that study found that women were able to find more lumps, but they could not find their breast cancers earlier. So there was no difference in breast cancer mortality oh, wow. because all of these women had worked in the textile industry bureau. The project I actually worked on was trying to describe all their occupational exposures and their the relationship to
0: cancer. Huh. Uh, Dr. Mulan, can we, uh can we start with a quick definition of epidemiology? yeah <laughs> you're like
1: the first day of graduate school uh-huh. <laughs> you know the study of disease and health and populations
0: okay so i i really appreciate you saying that because i think there's a, a key thing in there that i'd love to sort of double click on which is populations mm-hmm. right because we're in a world where cancer the, the common language at least we hear a lot nowadays is personalized medicine individualized medicine this this movement towards N of one, i.e., you're treating me Samira, not the population that Samira belongs to. So I'd love for you to sort of juxtapose the study of populations versus individualized medicine. And how do you see those two things come together? That is a really complex question, because
1: as an epidemiologist, you are often thinking about population level impact and health, that certainly is what came out of the COVID-19 pandemic and sort of what was driving public health decisions yes. over what people might have done as an individual. Mm-hmm. And it can be frustrating because you want to be able to say, oh, for women like you, because you have these factors, this is really what you should do. Yes. But that's like evidence synthesis, right? It's a lot of studies generated across a lot of different populations that you can start to see consistency, commonality, and some magnitude. Hmm. Um, I have done once an evidence review for the US Preventive Services Task Force, which sets clinical guidelines for the United States population. And that can sometimes be the part that makes it really challenging
0: Mm.
1: in um, identifying subgroups of people who might do something different than what you might do on the population level. Mm. Because there might not be enough data, there might not be enough consistent Mm. data, there might not be studies that actually chose to look at subgroups. Um, Mm. So sometimes just the act of being able to personalize as a privilege?
0: Uh, we should, the, uh, <laughs> you went to where my head was going with this, which is the intersection of privilege and the study of subgroups. Because the <laughs> thing that stood out to me in, in what you were describing right now is that if we look at the world with the lens of racial diversity, ethnic diversity, gender diversity, and we look at studies that have been done historically and may be d- being done right now. And you look at the representation of those populations and then the representation of the popu- like true, true population mm-hmm. level. Uh, I'd love your take on historically how that was handled, maybe where we are today and where you see us going. Because it's something that of course is near and dear to my heart uh, with a couple of hats. I'm a woman of color. AYA, so adolescent young adult, there are a number of reasons why when I read papers during treatment, I often found myself struggling because I was like, well, I don't see patients like me having been enrolled in this trial. Mm-hmm. I don't see the data representing my specific context. And I think you're right that it's a it's a privilege to be able to even identify that that is true, and then a privilege to advocate for something different. But I'd love to talk more about this, the aspect of doing the research too. Um, I'll just reflect on my own personal
1: journey yeah. because it definitely has changed. I trained as an epidemiologist 20 years ago and a lot of what was driving how you would report results was driven by statistics. What were meaningful differences that you might report subgroups hmm. Um, And whether or not the statistics sort of reflected that there might be decisions you had made before you started the research that drove you to to want to look at specific subgroups, but it was really around the math and whether or not the math uh, led you in a certain way as to how you reported it. Um, And then increasingly, like at a, conference i was at just last year where a head of a cancer organization that focuses on sexual and gender minorities talked about what data are actually available in these populations it doesn't get reported and the reason why it doesn't get reported is because people didn't ask about it or even Mm -hmm. if they did Mm -hmm. it might be in five people yeah and their point was Mm -hmm. that doesn't matter this is a group of people that wants to know what these results look like in their population. And I've started to see a shift even within our own field about how the reporting of these results in subgroups is important because collectively, if we can start to report and summarize these results in other studies or across studies, That's where you might have like the power of math, you know, larger numbers, Um, but we we need to start reporting it. And so I'm starting to think about how I can incorporate that in my own study findings and my own study results so that the data just become available and people can see themselves in their
0: data. The thing that strikes me about what you just said is there is such a natural tension though, because for something to be quote unquote evidence-based, I'm guessing you need to have some sort of statistical validity. Yeah, And to have statistical validity, at least in the way we understand or describe scientific evidence today, that paradigm rests on hitting a large enough N, N here meaning number of people enrolled, number of samples enrolled, and I'm guessing that when we're talking about subgroups, your example of n of 5, n of 1, n of 2, small, small n, I'm guessing it doesn't hit the scientific bar either. It just doesn't, the number just does is not high enough for it to hit the scientific bar. So then how do you report that? How do you kind of maintain the scientific uh, I guess, integrity, it's not quite what I mean. It's a scientific bar, I guess, while ensuring that there is data available. Um, I think that there are thresholds to that. Hmm. And
1: I can't tell you, like, what is the end supposed to be in order to hit these thresholds. But you're right. If you only had five people in a subgroup, doing complex math about relationships is impossible correct but at least i can describe mm. what's going on at least right. you could see mm. what's the distribution of the exposure or the outcome of something right. i'm studying so that we start to understand mm. maybe what's going on in this population when we don't have any other data right because right. the description itself is the starting place.
0: Right. Huh. It's, uh, it's actually incredibly profound what you said and I, I do want to underscore it, which is it, <laughs> this goes almost full circle back to art in some way for me. So I, uh, I happen to study art history and bioengineering in undergrad. I have this little bit of a bizarre undergrad experience where I went to two schools to very different uh, degrees and art history, as the name describes, is the study of art and history, you know, studying history, but through the visual media. Mm-hmm. And then bioengineering is very science heavy, very technical, you know, rule-based. There is a scientific bar you have to hit. And I remember consistently struggling with the um, tension between those two fields. Mm-hmm it's not that art history doesn't have rules and objective measures, it does. It's just you rely very heavily on subjective narrative.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And the, m- there is a method behind subjective narrative too. And there is a way of studying history and studying the visual media that is the analogous analogy, analogy of like evidence-based, right? There is a mm-hmm. method that is agreed to within the field to drive to a bar of quality. And I remember with bioengineering, that's of course not the case. You don't have a subjective narrative based approach. It's more quantitative, it's more math driven. It is more advanced math driven. It is more engineering driven. But the bar of quality is still high in both those fields. It's just how you measure quality is different. And what strikes me is it's almost like if I had to re- rephrase what you said, it's almost like we've always been in this like sci- very, very scientific, evidence-based world and we're transitioning a little bit or rather we're pulling a little bit from the world of humanities we're kind of pulling from more of the liberal arts methodology and bringing that thread maybe into the scientific narrative and I find that to be one intellectually very interesting and do very powerful actually because it does allow patient voice to be heard in a new way it allows subgroups that have been ignored to be heard in a new way and I I think it allows for uh, all of the things we talk about under DEI uh, to come to fruition within the world of scientific research. So I think that's, uh, I actually really love what you just said. So thank you for sharing that.
1: I think that's a really interesting perspective and something I hadn't ever appreciated before. Uh, Since most of what I've done, like in my 25 years of education, It's been so science-focused and not an understanding how art or social sciences could actually influence these quantitative measures. We will come back to this, I know, when we are talking. I already can perceive what the questions are and how I will relate it back to this point in our conversation.
0: (laughs) I I agree. Um, all right, so on that, on that note, I, I'd love for us to sort of transition to one of the topics I was hoping that we would get into, which is survivorship, and mm. specifically in breast cancer. And I'd love for us to start with any perspectives you have from an epidemiological perspective on the world of survivorship. So just some grounding things, like right? you've been in the space 25 years, breast cancer has seen immense shifts in the last 25 years, at least U.S., and I'd love for you to talk a little bit about what you've seen change, what you've seen not change from a point of view of survivorship.
1: Uh, and let's just make sure we preface for everybody that I'm not a physician, that I don't treat women with breast cancer, haven't ever actually studied a lot of breast cancer treatment, and thinking about chemotherapy. Um Actually, a lot of my work in survivorship has been focused in adolescent and adult cancer space, yes. What I am seeing is that there's a lot of emphasis in sort of trying to help people transition from the end of treatment into like the next phase. The National Cancer Institute defines survivorship at the time of diagnosis but historically, and I think even currently, people sort of start to think about it from the time of end of treatment. And it really reflects actually, I think, even on the research that we're going to talk about, um, that for many survivors, that transition is unstable because it's another place where you need some translation about what the next steps are or what the future holds or why you're doing certain things or when you're doing them, that I think clinicians and researchers, Mm -hmm. staff know that there's a gap and are trying to do their best, but still somehow isn't satisfying enough or meet the needs enough. Yes. Yes. And I think it particularly starts to wane the farther you go from the time in which you were diagnosed. I think part of that is just the healing that happens for a patient, and hopefully, they're not thinking about cancer every second of every day, and now more fully present in other parts of their life. Mm-hmm. Um, And part of it is because we don't really have great models of survivorship care so that uh, everybody's able to participate in all the things that they should be doing, you know, even years after they were diagnosed
0: with cancer. Uh, One, I think what you said is it resonates a lot. Uh, I think it's the instability of that transition from end of active treatment into kind of what we've historically called survivorship, it's very daunting. And I'm just also going to caveat that we're talking mostly early stage breast cancer. We're not really talking metastatic breast cancer because that world looks very, very different and has a very different uh, culture, for lack of a better word, experience from a patient perspective, experience from a family perspective. So we are really talking early stage breast cancer. And I, I know this from having gone through it. it. It is it was in a lot of ways much harder than treatment. Mm-hmm. And it's, ve- it's very underappreciated. Like with treatment, you have a plan. There is a milestone you're trying to get <sighs> to. There is someone, or many people usually watching you, monitoring you. You're in the system actively. Survivorship kind of feels like you get thrown off this cliff. Mm-hmm. And there really isn't anything nice to catch you. And the framework at place or the model in place is very loose i remember my oncologist telling me you need to call me for any symptom you face and i was like so if i have a headache i'm supposed to call you and she goes well yeah The headache persists for like two weeks yeah you need to call me and i just remember sitting there being kind of stunned which now having read it i understand why she says it because in my specific case uh if a recurrence happens or if, if, if the disease progresses, it goes to the head. And I, I understand why she said it from a biology perspective, but I just remember sitting there going, oh my God, I need to now monitor every symptom of mine. Mm-hmm. I need to be on top of every symptom of mine. The road is not actually over. This journey isn't actually over. You're just in a new chapter of it. And that was such a hard thing to wrap my head around because I thought the journey would be over for 18 months. I was like, yeah, this is going to get done. We're going to be done. I'm going to be, you know, fully back and fully recovered and won't have to think about this again. And that's mm-hmm. not true.
1: That's something I heard from women who were part of our patient advisory board for this research paper that we're talking mm-hmm. about. And also in some of the focus groups that we did, Uh, was also sort of their surprise that they're living with breast cancer as a chronic disease. And again, as you said, as a caveat, it was really around early stage breast cancer, not metastatic breast cancer, but the way in which treatment and late effects of treatment, um, how you monitor for new cancers or cancer recurrence are all part of what that means to be Caring for cancer as a chronic illness yes
0: can we talk about the last thing you just said which is monitoring for new cancers or recurrences I'd love for us to just do a couple of like definitions and then talk a little bit more about the tools that are used today for that in early stage breast cancer and now you're really gonna like push me on
1: sort of what I know in terms of um, Everything, which is not everything, Um, which definitions do you want to start with?
0: Let's maybe start with, um, you defined survivorship already. Let's maybe start with surveillance. Yeah,
1: surveillance is this term researchers and doctors use about understanding what is going on in a population or a patient. To see whether or not something's happening. In this case, if you're talking about early breast cancer patients and they're in survivorship post-treatment, you're really focused on what I've often called our second breast cancer events because sometimes how we collect the data, it can be hard to tell the difference between a breast cancer occurrence and a second primary breast cancer.
0: Okay, so can you hold that thought? I definitely want to come back to what you just said. Okay. But before, before we come back to that, uh, can we also define screening? Yeah, screening. This is
1: actually in epidemiology, like one of the first concepts that you learn. Because when you screen, you want to be able to find disease early enough where you can actually do something about it. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of ways, like if you think about genetic screening, you could talk about whether or not we always can do something, Um, but let's put that to the side and think that for screening, you're trying to find something that there's treatment for that you can sort of shift the course of disease.
0: So what's the difference between screening and surveillance?
1: Often, nothing. In terms of what is the actual test that's happening Hmm. but the purpose. Hmm. Screening is often applied to people who have not yet experienced the disease Mm -hmm. and surveillance is often a term that's applied to a population Mm -hmm. who maybe has experienced the disease already. Got it.
0: Got it. Okay so that's incredibly useful and helpful at least for me. I always conflate the two. So do we
1: (laughs) all the time.
0: I've also seen screening and surveillance. You know, I see that yeah. that coined term used yeah. all the time. And actually, when I look at the order for the mammogram, it says screening. It says screening, and I remember seeing that and getting really confused because I had assumed that I would be in surveillance land, and it's just which you a- are. Correct, right? But the thing is, like the way the system processes the order is screening. It's a screening mammogram, not a what do they call it? A diagnostic mammogram. It's just. That's actually a
1: different test.
0: Oh, oh, okay. Uh, We we need to talk. Okay. That's another thing that we need to come back to then.
1: Uh, You know, the the billing codes, the way in which every time we participate in healthcare gets segmented into a cost code. Right. And also, theoretically, the test in some ways is defined as a screening test.
0: But is the Um, test actually different? Like, is a mammogram actually different?
1: A screening mammogram are two views of the breast, and a diagnostic mammogram is four views of the breast. (sighs) And some of our work actually in early breast cancer survivors have shown that a lot of women in surveillance are actually getting diagnostic mammograms um, so that they get extra views. Mm -hmm. And that occurs, sort of declines over the first two to five years after diagnosis, Hmm. such that by the time you're about five years out, most of the surveillance exams that are occurring are really done with the screening indication, not with a diagnostic, mm-hmm. but in the early period, it's, it's a mix.
0: Huh. And is there any evidence to suggest one is better at catching either a recurrence or a new primary? No evidence that suggests that one is better than the other. So They kind of are equally weighted.
1: This idea is something that my research started to unveil and more of my colleagues have also started to study just like in the last five to seven years. I mean, it's hasn't really been reported this way before, and I'm not sure as a community. I mean, you're shocked to like practices oncologists surgeons radiologists and they knew that it was happening sort of the extent or how or why i think has has was not well understood
0: interesting okay so we have the mammogram so we have kind of a screening mammogram a diagnostic mammogram one is two views one is four views Mm -hmm. what other modalities are being used in the screening slash surveillance world
1: those are currently the only recommended tests for surveillance in the absence of signs or symptoms of breast cancer. Um, I did a paper like 10 years ago where we were looking at screening breast MRI mm-hmm. and how women were using screening breast MRI. Mm-hmm. And one of the motivations for the study was related on this analysis that showed that a large proportion of women getting screening breast MRI were women with a personal history of breast cancer, Mm -hmm. for whom there had not been any recommendation Mm -hmm. that they would receive screening breast MRI. Um, Mm -hmm. So breast MRI, you know, other tests like PET or CT scans, even ultrasound, are really used more diagnostically, like if if the radiologist sees something, or if you are starting to present with signs or symptoms of cancer, that you might get these additional tests. Hmm. So the other important part to think about in surveillance is whether or not a patient has signs or symptoms of cancer because that will change the trajectory of the types Hmm. of tests they might receive.
0: Hmm. Before we go on signs and symptoms, uh, can we stay with MRI for a second?
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Um, I'd love for you to talk about, if you're comfortable, the pros and cons of a mammogram vis-a-vis an MRI. Just from a dual modality perspective, because they do different things. And to my knowledge, and this is where I will say something and most likely you will correct me, is to my knowledge, the MRI tends to have better performance, but it does also often have a higher rate of false positives. Mm-hmm. So I'd love for us to talk a little bit about that because I, I think that in the patient population, in the survival population, it's not actually clear which one is better, why is one better, in which populations, especially AYA. Like if I look at the data on mammograms in young women with dense breasts, that doesn't look very good promising and i know it's in guidelines but when you look at the data at least when i'm reading it it looks not great from from doing the job which is surveillance so i'd love for you to talk a little bit more about those two modalities and what how do they how, how do they compare to each other let's start first by
1: saying there's never been a randomized trial done in early breast cancer survivors on surveillance and whether or not it improves outcomes. And most often when we talk about outcomes, it's about reduction in breast cancer specific mortality. That evidence does not exist. Okay. And so the evidence that we do generate are things that we observe already happening Hmm. in populations.
0: Hmm.
1: Hmm. And that's the data that we used in our study that's that's, that's how you get results. Um, and like what to say, it's funny. I mean, I know we're focused on breast MRI. When I was talking to women, they were like, why can't we just get an ultrasound? An ultrasound is great, but ultrasound doesn't work very well at finding what you're most interested in. Um, Hmm. a mammogram is, is the foundation to understanding the architecture of your breast. Hmm. Okay. It's the test that's been most widely used over the last 40 years. The one in which radiologists have the most number of images to understand your breasts and is foundational.
0: Hmm.
1: So I think it's important. That when we're talking about this test or that test it's not about either or it's about this and
0: Hmm. it's actually really helpful it's a very helpful framing it's a very very helpful framing
1: um Mm -hmm. you also started with your understanding is that the performance of breast summary is better yes the mammogram and that was actually the intent of the research paper that we published was to look at the performance of these tests. If you had this test today, what could you expect would happen? I, I asked, and we actually, no, that's I the that's the question, question, right? Um, because I was working on trying to build towards a decision yeah. tool and so that women would understand, yeah. oh. Um. A mammogram would find these cancers, but miss this cancer. An MRI would find these maybe one or two or three additional cancers. Let's not focus exactly on the numbers. I'm not sure what those differences are off the top of my head, yeah. um, but might also miss cancers. Hmm. Um, and then look at the biopsy rates. Mm-hmm. Um, the false positives is what we call them. Um. And then sort of where the truth is, all, all this cells for truth. Correct. And what we actually found in our study is that the tests, mammograms, and MRIs equally worked well in being able to find cancers, that there was no difference in those two tests. I've started to take this perspective that when we look at performance metrics, we look out, let me define that um sort of a quality standard we say if you get this test today what is the result of that test and do you have cancer in the next 12 months it's a long it's a long time frame yeah yeah that's long. um And I haven't looked at all the studies on breast MRI as to whether or not they're looking out 12 months Mm. so that they find missed cancers that the MRI didn't see. Um, Mm. I'm sorry to take this tact. The mammography does pretty well at being able to say, do you have cancer today? And if you don't, you very likely won't have it over the next 12 months.
0: Mm.
1: An MRI maybe does a little bit better at being able to say today, I don't, I do, or I don't think you have cancer, or I think you might have cancer, but it doesn't do maybe as good a job over the next 12, 12 months. This is my huh. okay. researcher perspective. And if you talk to radiologists, they might um, sure. have a different perspective.
0: Huh. It's actually very, very helpful framing. Uh, It's very helpful. And there were two things that are, at least for me, uh, kind of key, key takeaways for a survivor listening to this. And the first key, key takeaway is that the, MR, the mammogram is the foundation of the test. I think that's an incredibly important insight that I definitely want to underscore because I actually haven't heard that before quite described that way. I also haven't heard the description that it is the tool used to uh, look at the architecture of the breast, which is also a very powerful visual and a powerful analogy because that at least from a survivor, honestly, mammograms from a patient experience perspective are not fun. I'll do it any day, anytime over a mammogram, voluntarily outside of performance characteristics of the test and why and everything. But it's just, it's not a fun test, but the framing that it is a foundation and that it is the tool being used to understand the architecture, I think is incredibly powerful. I think the second piece that I, I did not appreciate, but I really, really am glad that you specified the nuance is these tests are not just doing point in time, but because of the volume of evidence that's now been generated over over the last many, many years, there is a prognostic or a predictive aspect of the test, which is effectively, it is, quote unquote, clearing you for some duration of time That's after right. the test. That's right. And with the mammogram, it sounds like it's, I'm doing the test today and it's clearing me for one year. Yeah. Not always, but outside of signs and symptoms, but in the absence of signs and symptoms, it is this sort of like, you essentially are clear for one year. With the MRI, while it might be more sensitive, it doesn't have the same sort of look forward window established as established as the mammogram. Fair that's right? true.
1: That's true. Okay.
0: That's actually very, very helpful. I, I think that is a profound explanation for surveillance because it helps underst- at least I understand what the heck my surveillance plan means now. <laughs> I think it also is then
1: important, like, why does the test get it right or why does I get it wrong? Hmm. Mammography works best for slow-growing breast cancers, slower, slower growing, right? Hmm. Because if it's slow growing, hmm. that yeah. time frame is right,
0: time frame works, hmm.
1: but you change either the cadence yeah. of imaging or the type of imaging. And that's what is allowing you to maybe pick up faster growing tumors.
0: I see. I see. So then the subtyping of breast cancer becomes more important. So just just to put kind of a more uh, direct example, if you have HER2-amplified breast cancer or you had HER2-amplified breast cancer, maybe the frequency of imaging is higher because of the higher growth of the cancer, like how quickly it grows.
1: Or maybe the frequency of imaging should be higher. Should be higher. Although it is not, right? Okay. Currently, national clinical guidelines recommend that all women uh, up to stage three breast cancer receive an annual mammogram yeah. for the rest of their life.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm definitely in that bucket regardless of having her to amplify breast cancer. Uh, huh, okay. And then where where do you see the role of whole breast ultrasound?
1: I don't think I can comment on that, Okay, actually.
0: Okay, that's totally okay. Uh, okay. okay. Completely fine. I'm just, I was mostly curious, because I know it's a newer modality that is now somewhat being used occasionally uh, to supplement... Mammograms. I was just curious, but we, we don't have to go into that at all. Um, I think that, the,
1: I mean, I tried to describe this at the beginning, and if this is like maybe more of a theoretical conversation.
0: Yeah. And not a clinical one. But
1: whether or not there's actually a tool that makes a difference, right? Yes, exactly. And we are living with the presumption that there is a tool that will make a difference. Yes like a mammogram or a breast MRI or a mammogram with a breast MRI. Hmm. And we don't really actually n- know yeah. very well hmm. that the tools together make a difference. Hmm.
0: Uh, so I have, I have two, two reactions to that. Uh, reaction one is I'm wearing my scientist hat uh, and with the scientist hat, I'm like, yeah, okay, you're right, completely right, I get, I understand, I understand that we don't have evidence today to drive the primary endpoint, i.e. overall survival, right? If I switch my hat to a patient hat, oh my god, that freaks me out, (laughs) it's really, it, it is so unnerving, it is so unnerving, because wearing a patient hat, it's almost, how do I describe it? The way, the way I navigate the year, and this, this probably isn't, if any psychologist or psychotherapist is listening to this, it's probably not the healthiest, but unfortunately or fortunately, that's how my brain works these days is that annual exam is how I decide and plan my next year. Yeah. It just, it is, I, I like have to <clears throat> wait for that clear bill that clear test comes out and I'm like, okay, I can now move on with the rest of my year. So I try my level best to schedule it in January, first month of the year to get that like, okay, now I can go live my life for one year. So it's almost like I am living life now on a one year year cycle. Yeah, yeah, and it's a it's a funny psychological thing. And I think it, I, and it has shifted. It has definitely shifted. Like. In 2021 when i just finished herceptin i was on a three week uh, three week cycle my life had gone into three weeks can i see out three weeks and now it's a year so i'm incredibly grateful for that and at some point i'm guessing that that goes out but the reason i share that is i think the primary endpoint that we use in cancer which is so established as overall survival the more and more that i think about it with the patient lens on the more and more I question whether that is right, the right endpoint. For for a couple of reasons, in AYA five year survival, I'm thirty. Well, I'm not longer thirty. I was thirty when I got diagnosed, right? So when 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 I got the like you are good, you are cured, you get five years. My reaction was I get five years, guys. Like that I'm thirty. You're telling me I can live to thirty five. Like that is not <laughs> cure. <laughs> It's just it's just not cure. It, it, that is a very low bar. So that's one reaction. The second reaction I have to that is, life isn't just about overall survival. It's about quality of life. It's about right. can I live life in a way that lets me enjoy it? Right? So, so I, I sometimes have started questioning whether the primary endpoint in our studies, especially when it comes to tools imaging surveillance. Is quite right. Is it? Is it the right thing? Is there? Is there an alternative out there that we haven't considered?
1: I think that that's a really good point because the research that I did wasn't wasn't funded. The first times I applied, and some of the critiques were that again we can go back to this sufficient numbers for doing complicated math that we hadn't. We didn't have sufficient numbers to look at breast cancer mortality as an outcome.
0: Yeah.
1: And I had two patient advisors on my research project who were like, That's okay. Like that's yeah. that's not my endpoint. That's yeah. fine. These other endpoints are also important. Yeah. Um, and so when we were talking about art and science and this nuance, it was this subjective nature that they brought that I could see was really important
0: Hmm. Hmm. because Hmm.
1: our study found that using breast MRI resulted in twice, uh, two times more biopsies. And what that means is if you did it on a population level, there would be thousands, like tens of thousands of additional women having a breast biopsy. And that if yeah. you waited another six months the mammogram likely would have caught the cancer um and maybe would not have made a difference changed the course of, of what was actually happening mm. and so mm. what you are saying is imagine you had to do that every six months imagine if you if rather than living in one year increments are only living in six month increments yes we did focus groups with women across the country and women talked about going back to the radiology practice where they were diagnosed with breast cancer and just being so nervous the entire appointment, you know, that they would be put in the room in which they were told they had have breast cancer. And so now they're thinking they definitely have yes. a second cancer. Yes. But the tech had no idea. The yeah. tech didn't know yeah. that that was the room. Mm -hmm. Anything where there was a difference in the protocol, women already adopt that they have a second breast cancer. And it was heartbreaking, heartbreaking to hear that these small and seemingly insignificant points change how a patient perceives that experience that the staff, the practice just didn't realize
0: yeah I ver- I have definitely been there I actually I I actually switched practices for me it was like <clears throat> the drive to like me taking the two right turns to go to the hospital was enough for me to have a meltdown mm-hmm. I, it, I didn't even have to show up into the hospital room I just had to like be in the road I was driving the car like taking the right and I was like I just that, that is enough to like throw me over the edge emotionally. And I actually, I ended up switching practices because I was just like, I just can't keep going back there. It's it's too much. So I actually is get he... my like uh, imaging done at a different, different place because I, I just, I, it's just, it's too traumatic. And it's been three years and I'm like, at some point, <laughs> at some point, hopefully my brain stops uh, reacting that way. But it is incredibly debilitating. It's just, it's debilitating. It, it, it really does feel like PTSD. You like walk in and your head is in a very different place. And that in like the weeks going up to that and the week until the report comes out, it is the worst part of the year for me. It is just, and, and the thing is, I, I don't talk to my family about it because if it's bad for me, it is really bad for them. So what ends up happening is I actually go into this like don't, don't ask, don't tell kind of mentality. Mm-hmm. Like I won't tell my family when I've scheduled it. I I am very, very public about my experience, but usually I won't talk about it until it's done. Mm-hmm. And it is it is very, very unsettling. And i think it's one of the this is what i meant by like the the story of survivorship is one where one we don't have good models and frameworks mm-hmm. but we also have a very i think poor understanding today and here i mean overall system-wide poor understanding of what what are the values that are important to patients mm-hmm. what do we want because if we look at just sheer numbers and this is again why you can correct me but we're talking like Early stage breast cancer is a large percent of the cancer population. It is one of the larger groups that has is going through the cancer experience and it's not the story for every cancer, it's not the story for every cancer patient, but it is the story for a large percent of our cancer patients and I really would love to see a world where we are able to enable support and honestly research that drives to endpoints outside of overall survival because at least for me that it's not the end-all and be-all it just isn't there is this other aspect of life that is completely missed in the research aspect today
1: i wanted to I feel like i'm the interviewer I go back to sort of what you're saying which is not really a component of survivorship care which is dealing with the trauma of a diagnosis and treatment yes because by not even acknowledging that the experience is traumatic yes. even if you get the good cancer yes to to, to, the
0: patient experience. Mm -hmm. It's totally true. It's completely true. It honestly, it it underpins everything we do. It really does. It underpins everything that it it honestly has become the mission of my professional career. And it, it just has because I think it's one of those parts of the cancer experience where we just don't I, I honestly don't think we understand it and I think it actually in, in a beautiful way comes back to kind of where we start this conversation, which is the world of scientific evidence today does not appreciate subjective narrative. Enough, I should say enough because I do think it's changing. to your point it's changing. but we don't appreciate subjective narrative. And the thing about patient experience is it is subjective. It is a narrative it from what's true for me is not necessarily going to be true for someone else. And what's true for someone mm-hmm. else may not be true for another population. So there is a lot of subjectivity in there, but this is kind of where I, I, and it's a hope and a wish that the scientific world could adopt more principles from humanities broadly and within humanities, specifically from the world of human centered design, mm-hmm. because the world of human centered design actually, has somehow figured out how to learn and derive insights from subjective personal narrative and create products, experiences, services that enable and meet that individual or individuals in their context. And I think medicine is starting to go there, but we are very, very far away from actually building experiences that meet patients where they are We're very far away. The example you gave of the tech not knowing that the person was in the room, it's almost like given the magnitude of the issues the healthcare system is solving, that is so minor that it doesn't matter. Yeah. It, it almost is insignificant, right? If, you, if, if I put on the hat of I'm an oncology nurse running around seeing multiple patients on a day, I'm a tech who's back to back, that experience is almost it, it doesn't matter to me, not because I don't care, but just because I I have to hit a certain, I, I just have a different job. Right. But I do think it should matter to the health system. The health system here, I do think should matter because I don't think it's a tech's job. I think it is a health system's job because we are in a world where you could very easily move that patient to a different room with just a little bit of thinking, right? So. I think there are these like low-hanging experiential unmet needs that are sitting there ready to be changed but because of the way the healthcare system has been designed and structured it's it's actually really difficult to do it i, I know don't there are a lot
1: of people but. want to change it so it gets better and there are like so many ways, so many different conditions, so many experiences in which people are trying to chip away at that problem. And I, I don't, I don't know if we will get there in our lifetimes. I really don't. But you have to believe that with every advance in science or as you incorporate patient perspectives in your research to understand the actual consequences of healthcare consumerism. Hmm. Um, we'll, we're on a journey. We're on a journey towards improvement. Hmm.
0: Um,
1: I know that we will be doing a podcast book club. And As we've been having this conversation, something that's been resonating with me is that as a part of this research project of this paper that we're talking about, I had this broad stakeholder group. included clinicians from different backgrounds, and I brought together the patient advisors that I had. These were just two regular women who I asked to be a part of the research team. Um, I knew that Somehow I knew that they needed to be two because I knew that they needed to be peers so that they at least had support for each other um, as we worked together. Mm -hmm. And in one of these stakeholder meetings, one of the clinical stakeholders said something like, for me, for my patients, biopsies are no big deal.
0: And one
1: one of our patient partners talked about actually what a big deal a biopsy really is and especially after you've been diagnosed with breast cancer and so i think that Mm -hmm. that's what makes it actually really important Mm -hmm. when we're thinking about whether or not you're adding breast MRI or not adding breast MRI yes because it Mm -hmm. in part is around your tolerance for additional biopsies and how important that is for you Hmm. Uh, and then also the reassurance the mammography is doing its job pretty well most of the time yeah it's not like it's an utter failure Correct. correct correct um Mm. and I think that that's maybe where some personalization whether it's based on your cancer type
0: yeah
1: your own personal values Mm. insurance Mm. and tolerance for biopsy is is important
0: I love that. And I think that is absolutely a spectacular place to close because I think in the last few minutes, you just summarized everything we spoke about. (laughs) You did. You totally did. Uh, Normally I try and summarize it, but I think you, you completely, you nailed it. And I, uh, I really appreciate the summary because I think that's a beautiful place to end. You spoke about population versus individual. You spoke about how the choice between a mammogram and an MRI actually rests a little bit on the patient's desire and tolerance for additional biopsies. It rests on the patient's ability to, or not ability, the desire to one year cadence, six month cadence, what type of cancer you have, what type of breast cancer specifically. We spoke about how in the world of research, the patient voice has historically not really featured, but that has been changing. And that there is a new appreciation or a continuing growth of an appreciation for small and more descriptive, more narrative, more subjective data that is deemed valuable to both the patient community, but also the clinician community
1: Mm -hmm. and
0: how the world of research involves researchers like yourself, clinicians, of course, but also patients. Mm -hmm. So Uh, on that note. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been a spectacular episode. I am walking away having learned so much, and I'm sure that's going to be true for everybody listening in. So thank you so much.
1: Thanks, Samira. I've really enjoyed my time.
0: This episode was supported by an award from the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute. This podcast, show notes, and newsletter is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of information on this podcast or any materials linked from this blog is at the user's own risk. The content here is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions.